Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Elon Musk is the richest guy in the world and... Very close to being the most interesting. Well, that would be the guy in the Dos Equis ad, wouldn't it? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I mean, ad, yeah. Musk is just such a fascinating, you know, once in a lifetime character. Uh, incredibly disruptive, brilliant, innovative, also kind of quirky and sometimes almost, you know, alarmingly uh, cavalier at times, but he's revolutionized two giant industries, you know, the automotive industry and aerospace. And now with his purchase of Twitter, he looks like he will be uh, a giant bestride the social media industry as well. In this episode, Elon Musk, SpaceX and Twitter with journalist Eric Berger and my good friend here, Jim Meggs. He's very demanding <laughs> not, not, of, of pretty much everyone around him. Um, if you go to work for Elon Musk, you had better expect to work very hard and and and, and deliver. Um, and in turn, with him, you're going to get the ability to do great things. But you know, he, he expects he expects things to happen, things to get done. <laughs> and, and you'd better do it. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? 51-year-old Elon Reeve Musk is an entrepreneur, investor, and business magnate, according to Wikipedia's entry about him. He's the founder, CEO, and chief engineer of SpaceX, CEO and product architect at Tesla, founder of the tunnel-making firm The Boring Company, and co-founder of the neurotechnology venture Neuralink and OpenAI, an artificial intelligence research lab. In this, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, sometimes I worry he spreads himself a little too thin. In this episode, Richard, we're going to look at two of his ventures uh, in, in detail. Uh, first, SpaceX. And then in the second half, Twitter, of course, taking stock of this pretty earth-shattering development with him taking Twitter private or in, being in the process of doing that. 
With SpaceX, Musk pioneered the use of reusable rockets. Falcon 9 rockets are now flying astronauts into space and landing them on boats with incredible pinpoint accuracy. There have been about 150 uh, Falcon launches so far. And Musk has also made space travel a whole lot more interesting than it was before. On episode 294, we interviewed journalist Eric Berger, who's the space uh, reporter at the great science website Ars Technica, and a really great person to follow for anything going on in the space industry. Eric wrote the book Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. And Richard, you asked the first question. Well, today, Elon Musk is the richest man in the world and a titan of at least two industries. But when he launched SpaceX nearly 20 years ago, he wasn't that famous or that rich, was he? No, he was he was just a mere multimillionaire um, back in 2002. <laughs> um, he had cleared about $180 million from the sale of PayPal um, and, then, and then was actually ousted from the board of directors um, after that. So he was looking around for something to do. And one of the things that he was interested in was space and after he found out that NASA really didn't have a Mars program and it would be difficult for him to go buy a rocket from, from Russia, he thought he would see if he could do it. Um, but that $180 million, hardly enough to launch a space giant, right? Oh, absolutely. No, he put, he put about $100 million into SpaceX um, at the beginning, and that was enough to get them far enough along that they were ultimately able to get some NASA contracts really critical ones in 2006 and 2008 that really set them on a path for, for success. And at the time, the aerospace business was dominated by these huge companies like Lockheed Martin and Boeing, thousands of employees. And they worked very, very closely with giant government agencies, NASA and also the Department of Defense. Why did Elon Musk think that his little company could get a toehold in that business? Yeah, it really was impressive. It, it'd be like walking down the streets of Manhattan or something and look up the skyscrapers. And those are kind of like the big aerospace companies, these giants who had been around for decades had helped NASA and the Department of Defense, you know, launch every mission that they'd ever done. And Musk comes along and says, well, we're going to do that, too. And, and we don't have any government funding, but, it, you know, that doesn't matter. One of the things that he was so disillusioned about back in 2001 and 2002 was was the Lockheeds and the Boeings and and the fact that, you know, they were still using decades old technology to get into space. And the price of launch was not going down. It was actually going up over time. And so he, he thought that, well, what if we built our rockets in house? And what if instead of trying to build a rocket with 10,000 people, we tried to do it with 200? And what if instead of using a $5,000 computer, we just use something off the shelf? And so that was the basic philosophy of trying to build a much lower cost rocket that was still capable of getting into orbit. And it's hard to emphasize too much what a revolutionary idea that was, that, that a startup company could actually be a major player in the space race. That, that's exactly right. Some of the other companies that had tried to do the very same thing that SpaceX had done, um, similar people with visionary ideas, but just didn't have the wherewithal, the financial capital, or the right people, the right ideas to pull it off. 
but yeah, I mean, the, the, the Air Force, the, the large aerospace companies at the time would just scoff at these newcomers and think, well, here comes another one to, to tilt at the windmill and, you know, they'll be gone in a few years. So they got their Falcon 1 rocket built and their first launch was supposed to take place from uh, a base in the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific. But they had a rocky start, didn't they? They had a very rocky start. They they performed their first, um, uh, their first engine firing, so a static fire test in in May of two thousand five, and shortly after that, the Air Force and the National Reconnaissance Office basically told um, SpaceX and and Musk that they were going to have to wait months and months and months for another mission to launch from Vandenberg, this launch site in California, before they would get their chance. And because SpaceX didn't have government contracts, they weren't getting paid to build the Falcon 1. They were just burning money. And so that really prompted them to look elsewhere. And the only other site that they'd been working on was this small army base in the Kwajalein Atoll, which is really far out in the Central Pacific. If you were to fly from L.A. to Hawaii and then fly the same distance again, you know, further to the west, you would end up in, in Kwajalein Atoll. And that's where they ended up launching the Falcon 1 from. I'm the only person on this podcast, uh, Eric, who hasn't met Elon Musk, <laughs> but I have read stories about him in the business press, and he sounds not only like a visionary, but but pretty eccentric. So what's he like? He's very demanding <laughs> not, not, of, of pretty much everyone around him. Um, if you go to work for Elon Musk, you had better expect to work very hard and 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 deliver um and in turn with him you're going to get the ability to do great things um i mean no other private company is landing rockets on boats no one's building a rocket that may one day go to mars um so you trade right you give your all to elon and he allows you to be part of something greater and in person you know he's he's an intimidating guy he's pretty tall he's like six two or six three um bigger and um and just you know kind of a, a no nonsense um it, it also depends on his mood i've been around him when he's been in a good mood and when he's in a bad mood um and when he's in a bad mood you know you you kind of want to hide in the corner and when he's in a good mood i mean he's he's hilarious he'll he'll tell a joke and then he'll you know people start laughing and then he'll kind of iterate or riff on that joke and, and keep going and um, he's really, he's really very, very funny. Um, but, you know, he, he expects, he expects things to happen, things to get done. And, and, and you'd better do it. You mentioned the, the idea of landing the rocket stages on boats. And this was a big part of his early vision for bringing down the cost of space launch. Until Musk came along, we basically would build rockets and then throw them away with every launch. How does being able to bring the stages with their engines back down to earth, how does that change the cost structure? It's really changing, transforming the entire industry. You know, before SpaceX came along, if you were a NASA or the DOD or an American satellite company, you wanted to buy a U.S. launch, it, you know, to get 10 to 15 tons to lower orbit was probably going to cost you at least $120 million. Um, SpaceX set the base price for the Falcon 9 at $62 million, um, so about half that. And the general thinking now is, at least for SpaceX, the cost of getting that same payload to orbit on a used booster, you can, you can launch for about $30 million. 
So, you know, they've, they've cut the cost of launch in that sense by about 75%. So that's pretty significant. But, you know, from a broader perspective, they have really transformed the mindset of the launch, the vertical launch industry. You know, in 2016, so five years ago, it seemed ludicrous, ridiculous that you would be reusing the first stage of a rocket. No one really had done that. The space shuttle was reusable, but it was a different kind of architecture. And and reuse didn't really save a whole lot of money. With the Falcon 9, there's been this complete transformation because now five years later, all of its competitors are studying reuse to one extent or another. SpaceX was getting going. It was the waning days of the space shuttle. And I think I did a calculation one time that if all in that space shuttle program cost something like a $1.4 billion a launch. And uh, so NASA was getting more expensive and slower. How did that create an opportunity for Musk to come in and provide an alternative? SpaceX came along at a, at a fortuitous time in the sense that Following the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster um, in the early 2000s. That was the second uh, of the two Space Shuttle disasters. Uh, that was the one that exploded on reentry over Texas. Yeah, it, it broke apart coming in over Texas um, due to some damage to its heat shield. And NASA was looking around at how it was going to get its astronauts and into the space in the future. And more immediately, they were looking at ways to resupply the International Space Station. So basically, they were they were considering post-shuttle plans. Um, and the administrator at the time was named Mike Griffin. And he thought that private companies might be up for the opportunity to fly supplies to the International Space Station. Those were the seeds of the commercial cargo program. And so SpaceX was coming along just far enough in the mid-2000s with the Falcon 1 rocket, they hadn't gotten to orbit yet, that they they were seen as a viable bidder for those services. When we say private space, I mean, Boeing and Lockheed are private companies, but when they build something for NASA, they do it in a completely different way than when NASA contracts with, with SpaceX to actually uh, fly the mission for it. How does that work? The way it always used to work is NASA or the U.S. military would decide they wanted some service in space and they would put out a bid and, and Northrop and Boeing and Lockheed and, and other companies would come up with bids and would say, you know, we'll build this for two and a half billion. Where SpaceX innovated and where other companies have done since then is they said, we think the market needs this thing. And for SpaceX, that was the Falcon 1 rocket. We think there's a viable commercial market for a small satellite launcher that only costs $6 million for launch. And so the government didn't pay them for that. SpaceX said, we'll build the rocket and then we'll sell you launch contracts. This is not NASA giving SpaceX $2 billion a year to build a large rocket. This is SpaceX self-investing in the large rocket. And they figure once it's developed, the government customers, in addition to commercial customers, will be there to pay them back for their expenses. I'm fascinated by the the origin story that you tell. Um, in the years that SpaceX was just getting going, NASA was bogged down in the early 2000s. Tell us what was going on at NASA during the last days of the space shuttle. NASA kind of at, as the space shuttle wound down, was looking for a replacement for getting their own people into space. And they were also trying to counter this narrative 
that with the end of the space shuttle program, the country's space program was shutting down, right? That was the end of NASA because that was the most visible manifestation. And that obviously wasn't the case. Um, and so there was this really interesting dynamic where NASA was figuring out not only how to keep the International Space Station supplied, but also what their post-space shuttle future would look like. And ultimately, primarily led by Congress, you know, it led to NASA developing the, um, the Orion spacecraft for deep space transport and then the large space launch system rocket that would launch it. Um, and since 2011, NASA has been struggling to build this large SLS rocket. And at the same time, they've been funding SpaceX, who is who, who is providing the services for much less than other bidders, the cargo and astronaut services to the space station. But those funds are also allowing SpaceX to invest in the Falcon Heavy and the Starship launch vehicle. And both of those are going to compete directly with the space launch system. And as SpaceX becomes more efficient with what they do in launch, it makes the NASA program look worse. SpaceX is both a contractor for NASA as well as a competitor. And SpaceX and some other private companies um, are much better at building rockets than NASA was in the olden ways. And so eventually Congress will realize that and, you know, NASA will start to do some of the really hard things. Like if we're really going to go to Mars, transportation system is important, how you get there. But surviving the journey due to radiation, having power on the surface of Mars, having somewhere to live on the surface of Mars, having, having all these life support systems that have to be closed loop, those are all enormous challenges. And SpaceX could probably tackle them, but, but they're not thinking about those. They're focused on transportation. And so there's a lot of opportunity for NASA to do the hard stuff um, that that it's difficult for them to do because they're so focused right now on, on building a, a large rocket in the Orion spacecraft. Eric Berger on the origins and impact of SpaceX. Next, I'll turn the tables and interview you about your new article, Can Elon Musk Save Twitter? We've reached the halfway point. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So Elon Musk has about 80 million followers on Twitter. 
and he's spending $44 billion in cash and borrowed money to buy the social media firm. He plans to take it private, giving him total control. To say the least, the deal, which is expected to close in the coming months, is, is highly controversial. That's for sure. You know, Twitter is a relative small fry among the social media giants, but it plays an outsized role in spreading news and ideas, and it's the go-to public square for journalists, especially policymakers, analysts, politicians, and many professionals. Twitter continues to grow in size with about 217 million users at latest count. Profits during the last quarter were just over $500 million. So, Richard, I wrote my monthly tech column in Commentary Magazine about the takeover, but you said you wanted to ask me a few questions about my my take. I kind of like to start with this thought. Musk claims he doesn't care about the economics of running Twitter and, and making money. What do you make of what he said? Well, you know, it's easy to just roll your eyes at things Musk says and say, well, he's just, you know, he's just a business guy. He wants to make money. But his business ventures are all linked to some conception he has about the future of humanity. Musk made a lot of money early in his career when PayPal, a company he was involved with, was purchased by eBay. So he walked away with $180 million. And at that point, he said he wanted to pivot to doing things that really mattered for the future of humanity. He was concerned about the future of civilization. He was concerned about the planet. Out of that came his uh, acquisition, then the buildup of Tesla, because he believes electric cars are important. And he decided he wanted to build a space launch company because NASA and other big government space programs weren't really being as aggressive as he thought we should be in exploring the heavens and ultimately even maybe getting us to Mars. So I think he really means what he says when he says stuff like this. He's a huge communicator on Twitter. He's very outspoken, as everyone knows, and somebody who just believes in an open exchange of ideas and and I think he's been frustrated by what the same things a lot of people have been frustrated by in the last few years on Twitter, which seems to be a, a more restrictive approach to communications. Yeah, Musk goes both ways on politics. He, he gave money to Democrats and Republicans in the past and backed Andrew Yang in the 2020 Democratic primaries. So I'd be a little surprised if he tilted Twitter towards the right. But he says that uh, free speech is very important to him and that his main goal in, in buying Twitter is to turn it back into the politics agnostic platform it was at the start. Um, is he right about that? And, and do you think that's part of what he wants to do? I think a lot of people haven't followed this probably think that sounds like hyperbole, like what's wrong with Twitter? You need moderation. Otherwise, it's going to be full of, you know, racists and horrible people and threats and all that kind of stuff. And you do need some moderation on any social media site because, you know, it, it'll fill up with spam and porn and, and ugly threats to people, all this stuff. So you need moderation. You do need some algorithms to, to um, try to screen that stuff out. But, you know, Twitter has been alarmingly quick to sort of use the fact check model to determine whether uh, a particular tweet should be allowed or not. So that might mean things like CDC statements that are highly debatable or even uh, arguable in different ways, like say, or issues like the lab leak theory, 
that stuff was getting flagged by Twitter as misinformation for a while. Or very famously, at the end of the the last presidential campaign, a story came out in the New York Post about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop that he'd forgotten about at a repair shop. And there was all kinds of stuff on it about all these really squirrely business deals he was doing with a lot of very suspicious people and you know around the world while his father was vice president. That story got labeled Russian disinformation by a few experts. Twitter not only didn't didn't let people share it, they closed down the New York Post account for weeks. Well, of course, now we know that the story was completely valid, genuine. New York Times, Washington Post, you know, a couple of years later have come back and said, no, all that stuff on the laptop was really Hunter Biden's emails. But, you know, that is a massive intrusion into the the process of of communication. Elon Musk has said that he's going to publish Twitter's code including its recommendation algorithm, and and he wants to authenticate all users, which I guess could help reduce anonymous trolling. Um, Is this important? Do you think that he may be able to improve Twitter's transparency? Yeah, I think it would be great. Uh, Not so easy to do. Let's do the authentication thing first. Uh, The idea there is that to set up an account, you need to link it to either your email address or your phone number. That doesn't mean you have to uh, do the account under your own name. He understands why some people might want to be anonymous, but the very fact that the account is linked to a real person dramatically cuts down on bots and and obnoxious trolls and threats and, and, and that kind of stuff. So it's one step to helping make Twitter a more uh, polite and, and less crazy place. And I think I think that's a good idea. The idea of, he, he used the term open source for the algorithmic, um, the, the various algorithms they use. There are some interesting possibilities there. But imagine if you could, um, you could go to a page, you know, on, on, on Twitter and it would say, okay, here's, here's the algorithm we're running for, for recommendations for you, you know? And if you could, if you could understand how the algorithms w- works, it might res- restore some trust. But also, what if they gave people a range of options? Like, I might want an algorithm that that gives me pretty, something pretty close to just a chronological feed of the people I follow without without elevating certain things to the top. Or, you know, Twitter lately has had all kinds of, there's this whole side panel where they're constantly recommending stories and stuff. And I, I kind of, that's not what I go to Twitter for. It's their opinion of what I want to see. I go to Twitter for all these smart people that I follow. I want I want to hear yeah, from them. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you on that. So before we wrap this up, um, I know that you wish Elon Musk well, but that you're skeptical he'll succeed. Um, I'm, I wish him well, but boy, I, I kind of wish he'd censor himself a bit more and and be off the platform. He's he at times he's really acted like a jerk. I mean he's made a childish swipe at Bill Gates. He called Elizabeth Warren Senator Karen, which is maybe funny to some, but sort of stupid if you're a powerful person with eighty million followers. And then of course he went after that British cave explorer calling him pedo guy, which resulted in a defamation well, that was case just, that he ultimately yeah. won. But you know, it's like stop being quite so impulsive and childish. That accusation of pedophilia for the guy trying to rescue those kids in the cave was just weird and ugly. That was during a period when when a lot of us thought Musk was maybe going a little off the rails, you know. 
So, so that that behavior does give me pause. But so, what are you? What are your reasons for being skeptical? Well, that he's going to turn things around. I, I'm not. I, I skeptical maybe is too strong a word. Uh, the, in my column, I tried to say that I have worries. <laughs> that, you know, it's just such a hard job, and there's going to be so many people fighting him, including inside the company. It's not like building your own company from scratch with people you hire. And then, yes, I worry a little bit, and I, you know, I respect Musk a lot. I've met him a few times. I, I, I mean, we're he's going to go down. In history, like a Henry Ford or you know an Akio Morita, a visionary business person who changed the industry and the world, and uh, it just it just in terms of what he's done at SpaceX. But he can be kind of flaky. He doesn't censor himself very well. And now that he's in a business where he has to interact with government so much, not just in the U.S. but around the world, everybody wants to clamp down on social media. You know, he's really got to be careful that he doesn't give them ammunition or inflame them. So his lack of diplomacy is is definitely a concern. You know, how many things can a person do? How many businesses can he run and focus on? Can he keep all these balls in the air? I sure hope so. I think if he does, it'll be good for for Twitter. It'll be good for the spirit of free speech in this country and around the world, but it's not going to be easy. We'll check back with you, <laughs> no doubt, sometime in the future about uh, Musk and, and Twitter as well. Now I get to be formal and say thank you to James B. Meggs, author of the article, Can Elon Musk Save Twitter? Hopefully, which hopefully will be out soon. <laughs> <laughs> My recommendation will be the final bit of the show. And this is one that I think our listeners will find highly germane. I hear a lot of nonsense talked about Twitter, especially by hyperactive users and former users who speak of it like children, uh, that they're guilty being on the site and they just can't resist saying something dumb or snarky. It's like, come on, it's not that hard to edit yourself. The reason I'm on Twitter... Um, and I suspect you too, is because it's it's a good site for news information and also gauging the emotions of people, of what people are saying on hot topics of the day. I mean, the last thing I do is use it to scroll through a feed, um, because if you do, you just go down a rabbit hole. What you read is not informed opinion. You read a lot of uh, of, of screaming from, from both sides. And, and that's not particularly valuable. But there are a lot of people who are posting valuable things. And during the war in Ukraine, uh, Study of War, which is the Twitter handle for uh, the Institute for the Study of War, has been a really great source of news about the state of fighting in Ukraine. So just to be clear, your recommendation this week is just Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Well, I totally I, is Twitter. I totally agree. I I think I, I do go right into the feed. I do go down that rabbit hole all the time. I find it interesting, and sometimes uh, just going down the just scrolling through my feed is really really useful. I'll be working usually. I'm working on two or three stories at a time, but there's all kinds of experts out there who are um, who have different takes different different approaches to things like we did that episode with Alina Chan the the virus researcher who um, who has been a major force in in developing questions about whether uh, uh, covid came from a lab working 
you know, totally outside the mainstream journalistic establishment. And yet, you know, on Twitter, I was able to discover her work and other people that she was connecting to. And it opens up a whole world of insight into an issue that I wasn't at that point getting from The New York Times. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And that's our show for today. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. How Do We Fix It? is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Our website is daviescontent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 